Good morning. Good to be with you and good to be in this passage uh, with you today. 1 Kings and chapter 19. So we read in the book of James that Elijah was a man just like us. And I got to tell you, there's sometimes when I feel like that's a bit of a stretch. Because I think calling down uh, fire from heaven, uh, praying that there be no rain for three and a half years. I hope nobody's praying that right now because it's feeling like a long time since rain. But then praying and, and then rain comes, being fed by ravens, carried off to heaven in a chariot. I, I can't relate to those things, but when I read chapter 19 of 1 Kings, I can relate to Elijah. I can see a man who could be discouraged, afraid, and in despair. Growing up in church, I got the impression, maybe it wasn't intended, but I definitely got the impression that a Christian should never be depressed. If you're afraid or anxious, you are probably sinning, and it was a failure of faith. Now, I moderated that view over the years for sure, but when I experienced depression a few years ago, it changed how I viewed it, and it certainly changed how I viewed other people who were going through it. I preached on this passage a number of times through the years, and the first time I did so, um, I called, it was entitled A Failure of Faith. I'm really glad you weren't here for that first sermon, um, because I might have preached it a little bit differently. For Christians who go through depression or discouragement, there's that added dimension of guilt that I shouldn't be feeling this way as a Christian. There's a lot of names, depression, despair, despondency, dark night of the soul, just being in a funk, feeling like there's no hope. How does God feel when I'm going through something like that. Interestingly, Jesus is called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. God is tender and maybe more sympathetic to the moods that I experience than I may have imagined. Depression or despair can be experienced as a, as a low ache Anything from a, a muted affect to complete debilitation and withdrawal, a darkness, even a terror. Friends, I don't want anything that I say this morning to be heard to minimize the suffering that you may be going through or to give you simplistic solutions. That if we just trusted God more or if we just prayed harder, we wouldn't experience these things. We've learned a lot recently. The 21st century has helped us to understand better the, the medical and emotional aspects of anxiety and depression. Science and faith are not at odds. Properly understood, they can work together. We can understand the medical elements of mental illness and distress chemical issues, that medication can help, therapy can help, changing our lifestyle can help. But for sure as Christians, we must take the shame out 
of this discussion. If I have a headache, without shame, I reach for Advil. If a condition that I have requires medication, I ought to take it without guilt. I experience anxiety from time to time, and, and for a little while, I was on medication for a few years. And I'll just remember the first day that I had that pill in my hand, and I stood there staring at it for what seemed a very long time. Because there was such a stigma attached to that for me, I thought, I, how can I possibly do this? And yet it was a great help to me at that time. Science and faith are not at odds. God is the greatest scientist. He created the laws that science is discovering. Paul was a great healer, and yet he traveled with a doctor, Luke. We are whole people. We are physical, emotional, spiritual, and they all intertwine. Environmental and spiritual aspects are interrelated. And so that's why simplistic responses to despair are not helpful. Just pray and trust Jesus and all will be well. All will go away. Now, Christians have been not always comfortable talking about grieving and doubt and discouragement. Having said all of that, though, the Bible has a great deal to say about despair and anxiety. The spiritual dimensions of us matter deeply and relational closeness to Jesus can greatly increase our joy and give us peace even in the darkest times of our lives. We've been studying Old Testament characters. This morning, Elijah, the series title, Flaws and Faith. And I assure you, you have a flawed person here in front of you this morning. But I do have faith as well and have seen God do wonderful things. And so it's good to remember as we study Old Testament characters that these are not hero tales. These are not about perfect people that we should Im imitate. The Bible is very honest. Not a book about amazing people, but a book about an amazing God. A God who pursues us in our brokenness and does not give up, and who redeems the darkest hours of our lives. Yes, Elijah was a person just like us. He could be afraid and disillusioned, exhausted. He could have times of self-pity, times when he was extremely self-absorbed and judgmental of others. And God reached out to him. Chapter 18 of 1 Kings is famous. There we have Elijah praying and rain that hadn't fallen for three and a half years is suddenly uh, drenching the place. There's this fire contest when for hours the prophets of Baal are crying and trying to get fire to come down and consume the sacrifice. And then Elijah comes calmly and in 25 words his prayer is answered and fire comes and consumes the sacrifice. People are shouting, Yahweh is God, and it looked like there might be revival. Elijah then actually has all of the prophets of Baal killed, and yet he was never commanded to do so by God. Was he beginning to go off script? In a state of what seems almost manic, he runs ahead of the chariot on this marathon run into the city through the very rainstorm that his prayer had unleashed. 
and expected, I think, a triumphant reception at the palace. Surely now even Jezebel herself would have to admit that Yahweh is all-powerful and revival would come. But all his life he'd been led by God, step by step through prayer. But here there's no prayer, no command to do this. And he's waiting out in the rain for an invitation to come into the palace. That's where we drop into chapter 19. King Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Significant. He didn't mention what God had done. Ahab is more afraid of his wife Jezebel than he is of Yahweh. So he edits the story heavily and describes what Elijah did, not God. And as Elijah shivers out in the rain, getting wetter and colder by the minute, he feels more and more alone. Jezebel is very calculating. She sends a messenger to Elijah saying, may the gods deal with me if this time tomorrow you are not dead. Sounds terrifying. She has great power, but she's given him 24 hours. Why not send guards out to grab this man she's been trying to kill for years and kill him on the spot? She is afraid of Elijah, but she plays him and he falls for the bluff. He's stunned by the threat, suddenly feels very alone. His world crashes around him, and it says Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Or, just as easily translated, Elijah saw. His focus was on Jezebel and the threat that she represented and not on God. Devastated by her unrelenting evil, he thought perhaps that he could single-handedly bring Israel back to God where all the other prophets had failed. He would succeed. And here, in fact, was proof in his eyes that he was an utter failure. He was, in fact, no better than his ancestors. No more successful than those who had gone before him. I don't know if you've ever thought this, if, if you've maybe ever thought, if God would only show himself more, Produce more miracles. Surely more people would believe. Jesus did lots of miracles, and yet there's a hardness in the human heart that can see a miracle done and the power of God unmistakably, but still reject because of the hardness of the human heart. That was the situation here. Fire had fallen from heaven. Surely now everyone would believe. It wasn't the case. It was going to be a lot harder than Elijah had anticipated. When I was at seminary, I thought ministry would be simple because we knew what all the previous generations had done wrong and we were going to do better. We knew how ministry should happen. And so when we got out there, look out church because things were going to be different. <laughs> well, we quickly learned that we maybe weren't as smart as we thought we were. And it was going to be hard sometimes. And Elijah found out that, you know what? Not everything was going to be as easy as he thought. 
There's actually nothing new here. Jezebel's been pursuing him for years for the best chance to kill him. Now he's standing right there in the courtyard and she doesn't do it. So Elijah, whose name means Jehovah is God, runs away. Jehovah is God, runs away. No prayer for guidance, he just bolts and he wants to get as far away from here as possible. He bolts south through Israel, through Judah, just keeps on running. This is a long way. This is like going from Elmira to Hamilton. A long run. He still doesn't feel like he's quite alone enough, so he dismisses his servant and goes into the desert. And when we're in despair, often our instinct is to separate ourselves from people, maybe at the time that we need them the most. Elijah sits under a broom bush, which does not offer much shade. It's kind of like a tree for one. And he, he kind of sits under there and says, Lord, I've had enough. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Elijah says he wants to die. I just want to press pause for a minute and say to anyone here that may be feeling like that right now, you're listening online and you're feeling like you'd like your life to end. I just want to say, dear friend, you are loved. Please reach out to someone. Talk to someone. Make sure they really hear how you're feeling. Find someone who will express and, and help you. You are deeply loved. Elijah's prayer here, if he had really wanted to die, Jezebel definitely would have obliged him. But he's not unique. Moses and Jonah prayed similar prayers. Jeremiah cursed the day of his birth. Paul despaired for his life. Ironically, Elijah, who wanted to die here and prayed that he might die, was one of two people in the Old Testament who never died. Some prayers are better left unanswered. Who said he needed to be better than his ancestors? I give up. It's too hard. Nothing I do matters. I asked a mentor one time what the secrets of successful ministry would be, and his answer surprised me. He said, what you really need is two things, compassion and a sense of humor. Compassion for people and a sense of humor so you don't take yourself too seriously. I've never forgotten that, and I think Elijah needed both of those things, more compassion for other people and a sense of humor not to take himself quite so seriously. Our emotions are very good indicators of our inner state and we ought to pay attention to them. They are not necessarily good tools to interpret objective reality. Elijah lay down under a bush, and he fell asleep. Maybe that's a good idea, and we ought to kind of leave him there having a little nap for a while while we talk about some of the possible contributions to despair. Well, the first is physical and emotional exhaustion. We are vulnerable to discouragement when we are physically and emotionally spent Elijah had been living out of a suitcase for three and a half years. He'd been a fugitive. He'd been running. He'd been alone. The dramatic confrontation of the day before was uh, draining. He'd had little sleep. 
all of his energy had been focused on this one goal, stopping the rain, bringing revival. Now that was completed with mixed results, he felt, and he was emotionally spent. He had a long, hot day. He loved Israel, and he was pleading with them to follow Yahweh. And in this extreme heat, he runs a marathon. We ignore our human limitations at our peril. We need sleep. We need food. God gave us the Sabbath, this beautiful principle of setting aside time for rest, reflection, and refreshment. Jesus said, come to me and I will give you rest. We need to know and understand our vulnerabilities because you can be sure that our enemy knows them. Spurgeon was a great preacher, perhaps the greatest preacher of the 19th century. But he was prone to depression and he, he said this, there are times most favorable to fits of depression. First among them is the hour of greatest success. Vulnerable after a great victory, an accomplishment, a mission trip, a retreat. Vulnerable after times of great success. It could be a loss of role. What was Elijah's role? Well, he was the rainmaker. He said himself to Ahab, there won't be a drop of rain here till I say so. I'm the rainmaker. Well, that contract had been fulfilled. It's expired. The rain had come. Do I matter anymore when my role is gone? Are the best days behind me? The loss that we experience may be a tangible one. It might be a loss of a job, a relationship, a position, the death of a loved one, a rejection, a divorce. A project completed, a move, a financial loss, an empty nest, a loss of health. Two weeks ago was my daughter's wedding, and it was such an exciting day. I just cannot tell you how wonderful it was. And ever since then, I have been feeling let down, right? Because my role as father of the bride is done. I'm still her dad, so I think I'll be okay. But there is that letdown after something that's been wonderful. Losses can be less tangible, a feeling of a loss of youth or a loss of influence or respect. We need to honestly grieve the losses that we feel, but then wait and embrace the next season of life. It will be different to be sure, but it can yet be good. In the time of darkness that I went through some years ago, I honestly felt the best years of my life were behind me. That the greatest influence and, and intensity of my ministry was all behind me. And yet God has brought me through to times of great joy and great blessing after. Different to be sure, but yet good. We can be disillusioned with people. There are folks who are prophetic types, real black and white. They are great to have around because they know what's right and wrong, but they can be very lonely. And they can be pessimistic and they can be critical. 
because of their unflinching commitment to truth as they see it. And Elijah was such a person. And so he got disillusioned with people. Oh yeah, hundreds of people yelling, Yahweh is God. What a joke. He's sarcastic and cynical. I'm the only one left. I was indispensable, but now everyone has let me down. Elijah had no meaningful relationship. He was a loner. I've been very zealous for the Lord, he said. There was another prophet at the same time called Obadiah. He met him on one occasion, and he was very dismissive of him because for him, Obadiah was a soft prophet. He was in the king's court. He ate the king's best food, a compromiser. What Elijah didn't know is that Obadiah was secretly hiding God's prophets. He'd hid over a hundred in a cave and at great risk to himself was feeding and caring for them. But to Elijah, compromiser, a loner. And here he sends his servant away as well. He's disillusioned with himself. I'm no better than my ancestors. I failed at my prophetic mission. Life is futile. And he was overcome with self-pity and a victim mentality. He believed a lie about himself. He needed grace for others. He also needed grace for himself. Elijah was disillusioned with God. I've had enough, God. It's not fair. It's too hard. He even speaks to God in the third person. I've been very zealous for the Lord. I don't like the way you run the universe. It can be a loss of hope. As he saw things, nothing had changed. Nothing would ever change. His eyes were off God and onto the present circumstances. Life was futile. The present problem was permanent. And there's no point. None of this is ever going to improve. Stop the world and let me off. Elijah had unrealistic, sorry, unrealized, well, both are true, unrealistic and unrealized expectations. He expected revival. He was devastated by Jezebel's response. Suddenly, his whole life mission was in question. When a goal that we have set and worked for for years is achieved, but then doesn't deliver the satisfaction we had hoped it might, we can be disillusioned. It's going to be harder than we thought. It could be that God for Elijah was no longer the goal, but the means. God's giving me the power to do my things instead of I'm doing this for God and the results are all in his hands. You see, Elijah, you did please God. You were faithful and obedient. I wasn't asking you to do anything more than that. Spiritual warfare. Elijah had taken on Baal, the very throne of Satan, in bold mockery and probably had underestimated the enemy, underestimated the persistence of evil. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. But here we come to God's loving response. 
God had never left him. You want to flee to a cave, Elijah? I will meet you there. God is surprisingly tender. Yes, he can bring fire down and consume a sacrifice, but God would now come in his gentleness to this broken man and show him compassion and just be with him. God comes in a listening presence. Elijah is not alone. He's never been alone. God is there, listening and gently asking questions. He's seeking to draw Elijah out of his funk. And he lets him sound off, including things that are inaccurate, three times. It's too much, God. I want to die. Take my life. I failed no better than anyone else. And God doesn't correct him. And there's a beautiful lesson here. When someone is sounding off and venting, let's not so quickly jump in and correct them. Listen. God can take it. I think maybe parents, there's a lesson for us here, especially as our children get older. I, I, I said often, I didn't like everything my children said to me, but I didn't want to stop them saying it. And if I quickly jumped in with judgment and said, oh, that's not wrong, here's a verse that says how that's not wrong, I would end the conversation and they would find someone else to talk to. And so I didn't like everything I heard, but I wanted to hear them say it. If we throw judgment in too fast, conversation ends. God listens. Then there's physical provision. So practical. This angel comes and provides food. Get up and eat. He wakes up to this beautiful angelic barbecue. Goes back to sleep, wakes up to another angelic barbecue. And I guess I imagine this uh, sort of uh, bulletin board in heaven, sort of to-do list for angels. And so this angel goes, oh, I wonder what's on for me today. Let's just see. Oh, do a, a short order chef for Elijah. Sure, we'll get right on that. And he comes down, and in this beautiful way, Elijah discovers the gentle side of God. God is interested in restoring us, not punishing us. He knows us. He knows that the spirit is willing while the flesh is weak. He gently leads like a shepherd. The gentle side of God. God didn't just love Elijah when he was producing. He loved Elijah, full stop. Spiritual renewal. We read, strengthened by that food, he travels 40 days and 40 nights till he reaches Sinai, the mountain of God. This is now way down in Saudi Arabia, we think. Uh, spends a night in a cave. Uh, that is some bread. Uh, one meal, and he gets 40 days out of it. Now, if you actually walk the distance, apparently it can be done in about 10 days. I've not tried it, but it doesn't take 40. So this number 40 is symbolic. It's symbolic of a retreat, of a pilgrimage with God. God is saying, I'm going to bring you to Sinai because that's where I started Israel. That's where I wrote the covenant. In other words, Elijah, I've got this. I've got this. This cave that we see may be the very cave where Moses was when God's glory passed by him. And so if Elijah was in that same cave, it's to remind him 
Elijah, I was patient way back then with Moses. I'm patient now. My plans are vast. They span centuries. And Elijah, I love you, the man, the person. I'm going to turn your running away into a spiritual retreat with me because I do my best work in weakness. And God comes in tender invitation and gentle whisper. Chris, thank you for reading the words the way you did. Not, what are you doing here, Elijah? But rather, what are you doing here, Elijah? What made you come here? What's the true desire of your heart under all the noise? Elijah vents, I've been very zealous for the Lord. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. He's been ruminating over this over and over. But God is patient and wise and he responds rather than reacts. Go and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. The Lord is about to pass by. Get into the light, Elijah. Interestingly, Elijah doesn't do it. He stays in the cave, even though God asks him to come out. Stays in the cave. So God sends a tornado, an earthquake, and a fire. And in those powerful manifestations, it says God is not there. But then a gentle whisper. Perhaps it's even silence. Elijah hears God. In the quietness, his presence can be known. And finally, Elijah comes out, pulls a cloak over his face, stands in the mouth of the cave, and a voice says again, what are you doing here, Elijah? The still, small voice repeating that tender question, whispering to his spirit. You see, we, we avoid silence. It's so rare and so difficult to find, but in those quiet moments, God can speak. I've been very zealous for the Lord, he repeats. I'm the only one left. He's stuck. He's stuck on repeat. Elijah, you have God's full attention, and you're just going to keep saying the same thing, but God is so gracious, and he's like, all right, Elijah, let's make this simple. Let's give you something to do. It's a gracious recommissioning. I've heard this preached on. Elijah was replaced because he failed so badly. Prospects for national revival spoiled. I don't think so. I don't think he's been disqualified. I think he's being recommissioned. Retrace the steps, Elijah, to where you got off track. I care for you. I have plans for you. And actually, you need a bit of exercise. So walk back to where you got off track. I'm going to give you a simple job to do, a practical task that you can accomplish that will ultimately fix the problem because you're going to do three anointings, seemingly unrelated, but they're going to set in motion the judgment on the house of Ahab, God's long-term plan. It's going to look after a foreign oppressor, and it's also going to do something even more wonderful. It's going to give you a companion. You see, God may seem slow, but he's relentless. And he's giving Elijah a second chance. Achievable goals, meaningful activity, embracing the new season. I love the line in the worship song. How refreshing to know you don't need me 
how amazing to find that you want me. After brokenness, Elijah is more humble. He will minister with greater empathy and compassion. And God will redeem his darkest hours and make him better for it. God corrects his perspective. Elijah, you are not alone. I reserve 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed to Baal. Your venting is fine. I'll let you do it three times. But eventually you need to hear the truth. You're not the only faithful one. I've had grace for you, Elijah. Now you have grace for others. And he brings Elijah into meaningful relationship. I love this. Go and anoint Elisha to succeed you as prophet. What, I'm being replaced? Is he taking over? No, listen to what I said. Not to replace you, to succeed you. That's mentorship. I have something more wonderful for you in mind. True community, companionship and purpose. So Elijah found Elisha, throws his cloak over him, and I'm sure in Elijah's mind, it's like, I'm just throwing this cloak over him, so he's the prophet now, and I'm, I'm out of here. And Elisha says, not so fast. I want to go with you. I want to serve with you. So despite himself, this loner Elijah finds himself pouring his life into others, deeply appreciated by Elisha, deeply mourned ultimately by hundreds of prophets that he has mentored. God had done a work in this loner's life. God is tender and gentle. No eye has seen or conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. God blessed Elijah beyond his wildest dreams. Taken to heaven in a chariot, no death. Present at the transfiguration with Jesus Christ. God's plans are so much grander than Ahab's puny little court. You're here and you're experiencing a physical or emotional loss, a change of role, disillusioned with people or yourself or God, or a lack, a loss of hope, expectations that have let you down, or even spiritual warfare. You need to know that God cares about you where you are. That listening presence, that God will listen. And also will bring friends into your life. Seek a friend or a counselor who will listen without judgment and draw you out. Physical provision. There's no shame in admitting you need help. But start with the basics. Good self-care. Food, exercise, rest, medical help. Spiritual renewal. Get away. Be ready to receive and look and listen for the quiet glory of God. That tender invitation and gentle whisper. No judgment from you, from God. God has not let go. He's not mad at you. And he won't wait till you've come out of the cave, as it were. Come out of the ruts of self-pity and shame. In silence, he is there. Listen for the still, small voice of God. Perhaps easier to hear in such times. Look for that gracious recommissioning. The isolation must end and re-engagement must happen. Look for achievable, helpful things that you can do. Correct perspective. Careful of making judgments and decisions 
when you feel really low. Get perspective. It's not as bad as you might think. Meaningful relationships. Re-engage in community. Look for God's unexpected life givers. Dare to hope again in the God of hope who plays the long game. If you have a friend that is going through a time of difficulty, learn to listen without judgment. Avoid quick answers and walk with them 